Welcome to Wine and Film, a perfect pairing. I'm film critic Gary Cogill, and this week, a discussion on Woody Allen's new melancholy look at love during the 1930s. It's called Cafe Society, and a new Star Trek film is getting ready to open. I haven't seen it, but I have a lot to say about Kirk and Spock and Sulu over the years. And I'm wine expert Haley Hamilton Cogill. Today, I'll pair wines from a classic director with a few old-world favorites from Spain that are a part of the Grandes Pagos de España family. And a futuristic movie reinventing the classic from a new world region, Walla Walla, fast becoming a favorite wine region in the world. You know I love me some Walla Walla. I know you love some Walla Walla. Okay, you mentioned that uh, about classics, and Woody Allen is a classic director. Woody Allen is 80 years old now, and it's it's just baffling to me. I don't know. I always think of him as like mid-60s. And doing, you know, talk, you know, doing that, I can't do Woody Allen. But but I've always loved Woody Allen movies, and I know there's people out there that just hate Woody Allen because of its personal life, and I get that. I have a tendency to be able to separate the personal from the film, and so... But he's the one that always writes somewhat personally about himself. And this is one of his 40-something films. We go all the way back to Annie Hall in Manhattan and Hannah and her sisters and Purple Rose of Cairo, one of my favorite with Jeff Daniels. But all of a sudden, this comes along, Cafe Society, and it's set in the 30s. It's it's a young kid from the Bronx who moves to Hollywood because he doesn't have a job, but he has family there. Where he falls in love with his secretary, with a secretary, but he's working for his uncle. And it's Jesse Eisenberg who moves out and Steve Carell's his uncle, who uh, is this big Hollywood guy and agent. And his secretary is Kristen Stewart. And it becomes a very complicated film, Haley. We saw this together. It's, it's, he falls in love with a young girl, but the young girl has something else going on yes. with Steve Carell. And I think we can say that because I think that's the early part of the film okay. without giving too much away. And it's, it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a mix of kind of the Hollywood scene of a kid trying to find a job. And he fought, and Kristen Stewart, who I think is actually very good in this film, Jesse Eisenberg drives me crazy because he's trying to do Woody Allen. Yeah. And then about halfway through the film, I, I got used to it. But Steve Carell is very good in this film. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's the best Woody Allen movie ever made, but about halfway through this movie, you meet another girl and it's Blake Lively and she jumps off the screen for She's me in this film. Incredible. I I love her. And that's I I did. I I enjoyed the first part of this film very much. Yeah. You you leaned over and, and said you've been smiling for the last forty five minutes. And yeah. and I did. I thought it was very charming. But then it just took a turn. And maybe maybe it's just because I I I like Blake Lively a lot, and I'm not as much of a fan of Kristen Stewart. <laughs> and so, if you had to choose between the two, which one would you really choose? Oh, if, if I'm a guy and I'm looking at him just by eye candy, yeah, Blake Lively. Yeah, she's lovely. She's lovely. Not, and Chris, Kristen Stewart's lovely. But uh, and actually, they're both beautiful in this film. Yeah. But yeah, Blake Lively, who reminds me of you, Ailey. Oh. Yeah, you're my Blake Lively. <laughs> so the film, t- first half of the film takes place in Hollywood, and the second half, because of what happens, it, it takes place in New York and in a high society nightclub. And I love the look of the film. I love everything about. Uh, I kind of like Woody Allen's writing in the film. But in the grand scheme of all these Woody Allen films. It's probably somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. to lower middle. Mm-hmm. It's not one of his best, and it's not a bad film at all. And I think a lot of people, because Woody Allen, Woody Allen looks like one bit for about ninety minutes, because a lot of times his movies, but that's his deal. Yeah. He just writes about his dialogue is really sounds like what people would say. Really funny, goofy, quirky people within his life. Yeah, 
And I, and I, I love, I love the Jewish grandmother. Is it the Jewish grandmother uh-huh. or the mother? Uh-huh, the mother. Oh, God, just funny. Well, and oh, I thought I funny. did. I thought Steve Carell was great, and I thought he was great in playing that part because he's he's dropping names as fast as he can, you know, mm-hmm. as, as he can think about them. And that was so kind of accurate for the kind of part that he was trying to play. I, I, I thought he, you know, did a great job. I'm there. curious about your wine pairing. Before I say that, Woody Allen narrates a film like he does a lot of his films. It's the first time I've noticed that he sounds like he's 80. Yeah. He sounds older. And he is. And he's brilliant. Oh, yeah. I'm a big Woody Allen fan. I I don't care if you hate him. I like his movies. You know, I love Midnight in Paris. I watched that just on the plane the other day, and it just always makes me smile. That's Zone Wilson's (laughs) trying to run around all the time. So, Cafe Society. Yes. So, I um, am thinking of a classic director. How about some, some kind of... Um, old world wines. So I'm, when I say old world, it's pretty much anything in Europe. So Italy, Spain, France, Germany, predominantly. Um, but you can throw in some Greece. You can throw in anything. Mm-hmm. So just anything that, that's been around for a long time. And, and I was in Spain not too long ago traveling with, uh, the Grandes Pagos de España, um, group, which basically is the great estates of Spain. And there, it's an esteemed wine growing association, promotes a culture of estate grown wines from these, these really high end, very, very special estates. And, and having an opportunity to go and see some of the, the vineyards that are a part of this, of this group was just fascinating. And so I'm going to say classic wines with very, very classic director with very old vineyards and, a few in particular that that just surprised me so much is Numantia. I've talked about them before, but to walk into the Numantia estate and the Toro region of of Spain, so just kind of north um, west of Madrid, with tinted de Toro vines that are over a hundred years old, and the entire vineyard is rocks, which. It's just like over a hundred years ago. Somebody, it's not growing in dirt. It's growing in rocks. It's, it's somebody decided to plant these vines in these rocks, and you'll see this in some other parts of of the world. The Rhone, certainly Chateauneuf de Pop, has very rocky um, vineyards also. But it just that's the kind of thing that fascinates me. And then the fact that these hundred year old vines are still producing fruit that it's very very concentrated and very very intense. They're some of the most robust wines from Spain or from the Toro region, but also have a really nice kind of delicate touch and delicate finesse. Um, another one that's a part of the, the Grandes Pagos de España um, that I actually traveled to several years ago when I did my truffle hunt was Venus del Vero C. Castilla. That in, rolls off the uh, top. Yeah. <laughs> um, in the Somontano region, so northeastern part of Spain. When we did this travel hunt, that just that was rather amazing. But we um, we visited this vineyard and had a, a picnic, and it was of course just barely snowing, and it was just very dreamy. Looking at these hundred plus year old garnacha vines, and again, it's it's vineyards that you wouldn't expect to see. Uh, the like, what was the vision at the time that these old bush vines were planted in this very rugged? terrain, but they're producing these very, very intense, really, really concentrated, dense and hearty wines. Um, Somontano in particular is, is at a, the Sea Castilla Vineyard is at 2,100 feet above sea level. So the nice cool nights, even on very hot day also, days also adds really, really great acidity to the wines. Um, another one was B- Bodega Maro, which um, has vineyards up 
upwards of 100 years old, that that these these textured and concentrated and really well-structured wines that that have so much personality. And I think that that mm. kind of pairs with a wine with uh, with a film that has a lot of personality, as we know Woody Allen does. Well, I'm just listening to you, and I'm thinking 100-year-old vines, 80-year-old director. director. <laughs> that is a perfect pairing. Hey, when we come back, uh, Star Trek Beyond is set to open, starring Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto, or Quinto. And Haley thinks you could live long and prosper with another good bottle. We'll be right back. And we're back on Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing, and Star Trek Beyond opens this week in theaters. Chris Pine plays Captain Kirk, Spock, Zachary Quinto, I think is how we say his name. The rest of the Enterprise crew is facing a big, giant alien threat. And I have to do a disclaimer right now. I've not seen the film, but I really like the director, Justin Lin. Justin Lin uh, directed The Fast and Furious, number three through six. And whatever you think about those Fast and Furious movies, because they are, I think they started horribly and got really good. And the last, really, since Justin Lin started taking over, these movies got at least watchable, and they're crazy and they're wild. But now to take over a Star Trek film is a really big thing, and it's written by one of the actors, Simon Pegg. And this created all really back in the 60s by the great and late Gene Roddenberry. Uh, the budget on this film is probably somewhere around $150 million. But I'm... I'm of the belief, Haley, that uh, years ago, two film franchises became boring. Star Trek and James Bond. They became middle-of-the-road, cliched movies, uh, really bored me to tears. And at some point, somebody grabbed both of those franchises. In this case, J.J. Abrams grabbed the Star Trek franchise, because he's a producer on these and directed the last one, and just kind of took them to the next level, or the last two. And I, I think these are, are interesting. I think this is the 13th Star Trek movie. Wow. J.J. Abrams took over at number 11. And now Jeremy, Justin Lin here, but they, they were, they were so corny and so bad. Well, Batman is, is another great example. They became, in fact, Batman probably became the worst of most of them. (laughs) Uh, the first one, uh, uh, directed by, um, um, you know, the great, oh my God, what's his not? Tim, Tim Burton, uh, and but the second and third and fourth, they they got, Val Kilmer was Batman at one point, and that's, that's a lousy film. But they, but, but somebody but grabs them and takes yeah. them to the next level and it takes, uh, it, it takes kind of a younger, what I want to say is this younger group of actors, younger filmmakers who are not stuck in the old ways come in and look at the franchise and grab it and make it their own. And I think that's what they've done with Star Trek. That's why I can't wait to see Star Trek Beyond because I, I, I think Chris Pine's an interesting Spock and I think Zachary Quinto's a fascinating or an oh. as fascinating Kirk and a fascinating Spock. And J.J. Abrams did Star Wars, right? And he took the last Star yeah. Wars film, took it to the next level. He's not directing the right, next two, right. but but he's but he's grabbed these things. I, he's the turnaround guy. He's changing it, yeah. Yeah, but it, it's this infusion of let's not do the old ways and keep making money and regurgitating average to middle of the road movies. Let's let's twist it up a little bit without ruining the franchise. They haven't taken the characters that Gene Roddenberry created and and, and done something wrong with them. And I and I understand that one of the correct characters now is is coming out of the closet in this one, and it's Sulu, which uh, was per, portrayed uh, in the in the earlier days by George Takai, who is gay in real life, 
And he's even made a statement that he thinks it's wrong to do that, even though he's gay in real life, because Gene Roddenberry never intended that. He wants to keep the integrity of it. But I think these guys can take it and twist it and do whatever they want with it, just as long as they kind of stay within the framework of Star Star Trek. Right. Yeah. I, right. I love it. I th- I've, I'm really anxious to see yeah, it. Right. I'm, a, I'm a big Star Trek fan once once they got good. But when they were average, I was not a big Star Trek fan. Yeah. I thought they were boring films. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So above we're and beyond. to see it. Yeah. To it. Yeah. You know, so when we think about wine, what are we thinking about? So talked about kind of some old world wines with, with classic. And so I thought for um, pairing with, with kind of the next generation, especially for a futuristic movie with mm-hmm. that's kind of been taken by a younger next generation, I'm going to go new world. And I'm going to go to one of kind of the newest wine regions in the U.S. that is pretty well known. Actually, every state in the country right now it actually makes wine. Every state and even I'm not saying even they're good. Vermont. I'm not saying they're all good, <laughs> but every state is making wine, and and one state in particular that is doing a fantastic job is Washington. And I yes. was just up in Walla Walla traveling with the Walla Walla Wine Alliance to their big Cabernet celebration. And it was the it was a fantastic opportunity, even though I've been up there several times, to really get a full understanding of of how incredible these wines are that are still relatively young in the grand scheme of things. You know, Gary Figgins started Leonetti, which is the first bonded winery in Walla Walla. And I think it was bonded in 1978. He planted his first vineyards in 1974. So we're talking about a region that is just, you know, 40-ish years old. And, And then that was followed by wineries like Pepperbridge and Cole and um, Gary Figgins, California Army Reserve buddy Rick Small that started Woodward Canyon in 1981. That again, both of these guys kind of are are the icons for Walla Walla, but it's still a region that's that's really new and and that's what's so kind of exciting. And it's also a region that you can have you could be. Uh, uh, a farmer, or you can be a a construction worker, or you can be laying pipe that in your former life. And if you have a dream and you have a passion, it's still very affordable to go and and buy some vines and and make wine. And there was a, there were a couple that that were some great new finds. I, I mentioned um, Leonetti, and then obviously Gary Figgins' son Chris Figgins makes his Figgins wine that is just some of the most beautiful and luscious and approachable wines um, that we've had. Um, there was one ex-fighter pilots that had a dream to make wine. And it just just that in and of itself, a, a couple that both of them were fighter pilots um, in the Air Force, and they have now moved to Walla Walla, and they started a Louvet, and just a really nice, luscious, beautiful, kind of Bordeaux-style blend um, Nita Beauty, which um, started Beauty in 2000, fell in love with the beauty. She's from Seattle, but she fell in love with the peace and the quiet and the kind of serenity that Walla Walla has and founded her winery. Um, and and a lot of this, a lot of what makes Walla Walla so special is kind of does look back to the the previous, which I also think kind of pairs nicely with with a film that celebrates now as well as the history of a franchise. Because they're, the reason that these wines are so beautiful is because of the soils that they're planted in. You have 
volcanic soils, you have marine runoff because at one point this, or marine sediments, because at one point Walla Walla was underwater. And then you have the runoff from the Missoula floods that happened when the glaciers melted um, in Canada and came down through Washington. So there's lots of, of incredible minerality and earthiness to these wines. Um, and, and they're just such a, a beautiful and and the several of the wines, both new releases as well as some of the, the nicely aged wines. We had one of, of Woodward Canyon's earliest wines still had such great fruit and and luscious and, and, and a kind of mouth coating palate that just was such a, a beautiful surprise and, and, and really kind of shows if they're this good now, how great they're going to be in another 40 years. I'd watch a Star Trek movie drinking a glass of Figgins Every day of my life, yeah. if I could. Absolutely. I love that idea. Hey, Absolutely. Haley and I are going to take a quick break. When we return, a couple off-the-cuff questions, of course, about wine and about film. We'll be back. We are back on A Perfect Pairing, and Haley, I have a question for you about this. I know what kind of wines I like, and I feel like during our marriage, I've learned a lot from you. I knew a little bit about wine, but I think I know a lot more now. But I, I want to improve my palate. And it, do I improve my palate just by sheer volume of tasting more wines? Or do I, how do I, how do I improve my palate? Yes, what do absolutely. I, do? I think that that's, that's kind of the, the best way. And, and as I've always said, and at the end of the day, the only thing that really matters in any wine is is drink what you like. And and if if you know that you like Cabernet Sauvignon and you only want to drink Cabernet Sauvignon, then only drink Cabernet Sauvignon. But with that, I would I would recommend drinking cabs from from all over the world. Then don't just drink Napa Cab or don't just drink Bordeaux. Drink wines from Chile and wines from Argentina and wines from Australia and. And and if you want to kind of grow your palate, then then yes, you have to drink more. Just taste and taste and taste and taste. The other thing I've learned from you is the more I know, the more I know about wine and the winemaker, the story of wine oh, yeah. behind what's actually in that bottle. That helps my palate a lot. Yeah, I think that I've I've found that over the years, especially in in writing. There, um, if if I'm not if I'm a fan of of who's making it. I have a uh, if I understand the relationship, the the connection, and the passion, and the story, then that's going to make me want to drink that wine that much more. Conversely, if I don't really like you very much, then I don't probably want to drink your wine. <laughs> so, so it begs the question: a little bit of intellectual knowledge can actually in improve the palate and the appreciation of the wine. Can also intellectually make the wine actually taste better. Well, I think that you have more because of a, you want to. You have more of a connection to it, and I think it's probably the same way. If you see a, if you see a, a film that our buddy Tim Monick, who's a dialect coach, right. um, has helped the actors with the 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 pronunciation of different things, I'm going to love a Tim Monick film a little bit more. Well, unless it's a Polly Shore movie. Well, absolutely. Yes, we won't go there. Tim Tim Monick. <laughs> I love that. The great Tim Monick. So, um, kind of speaking of Star Trek, who's your favorite Star Trek character? Really? You've never asked me this. I really, <laughs> seriously. Uh, I'm going to tell you. It's easy. Spock. It's Leonard really? Nimoy. It's the original Spock, Leonard Nimoy. And I like what 
Zachary Quinto's doing now with Spock. But when I go, because, because Leonard Nimoy as an actor was really interesting. He was in all the old westerns like Gunsmoke. He grew up on the TV series. He was in Night Gallery. He was in Outer Limits. He did a bad kind of alien invasion movie before he became Spock. And then when he became Spock, uh, he never really denied it. He wrote some books about it. I am Spock and I am not Spock. And then he became a film director and he directed uh, I think the third Star Trek movie, which became the highest grossing one of all time. And then he directed Three Men and a Baby. Yeah. He's the director of Three Men and a Baby. And, uh. He, he made one of your favorite film clubs happen. Well, there, you know, there's this famous scene, and we'll just do it real quick, but there's this famous scene. It was, Three Men and a Baby was the f- early days of VHS tapes. And we all thought VHS would make us stay home and not go to the movie theater. And they both blew up. They both did really well. But VHS really got kickstarted by Three Men and a Baby because there's a scene in it where it looks like there's a ghost of a, of the rumor is there is, there's a ghost in one scene standing in the background in the window of a dead child that was killed in that, in that apartment where it was filmed. The reality, it wasn't filmed in this apartment. It was filmed in a soundstage. And, but the rumor came out and when you, f- when you freeze frame, cause VHS is the first time we could ever watch a movie at home and Pause freeze it. it yeah. And you see that little image in the window. It freaks you out. It scares <laughs> you. So, uh, you know, every, every all night party, every slumber party across America, it rented like millions of times in two weeks. And it wow. kickstarted the VHS industry. And I interviewed Nimoy, Leonard Nimoy many times, and he never wanted to admit that it wasn't. But he smiled and <laughs> laughed at rumor. me because it's not. It's just yeah. it's a cardboard cutout of somebody in in that. That's great. But it looks like a ghost, and it freaks you out. But it jump started that. He he's he was fascinating to me. He was a really good man and a smart man, and did a lot of TV and directed. And I'm a big fan of the Spock. Spock, I love that. Spock to me was always kind of when Spock died last year in 2015. Uh, it 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 affected me a little bit. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so I I we've we've talked about some really good films the last couple of weeks. It's kind of early to have such great films coming out. Usually we think of of the what could potentially be our Oscar contenders coming out more at the end of the year, but films like Infiltrator and, and you know, who knows what this Captain Fantastic will do. But these little films, but with really great performances. And and then big big blockbusters like Ghostbusters and Star Trek and, and that sort of thing. And, and There's another Jason Bourne movie well, coming yeah. out. Well, yeah. And, and it does seem like there's some really good things that of, of any kind of genre you might like. And, and in a time where we're... we're you know the nation's kind of hurting. Dallas, especially, is hurting these days. So, do you think it's a it's you know can movies bring us out of some of this pain, or how do you kind of feel about that? I, I, yes, on kind of a cultural level, they're they're not really. I don't think movies. Ghostbusters does this. It makes us go and giggle. Yeah. And we haven't had a giggle for a while because the country is in so much pain. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, I think movies can do that, but there's a time period where you have to mourn for a little bit and then come out of it. And probably by, you know, this weekend, that, that's a time to kind of come out and go. You know, when you go see The Secret Life of Pets mm-hmm. and you go see Finding Dory, you'll be so moved. And when you get tearful in those kinds of movies, you'll probably get a little bit more tearful. Because you probably need to cry a little mm-hmm. bit. I think movies serve that culturally. I remember when 9-11 happened. I thought I'd never have a job. Mm. Because it took almost three or four weeks. I mean, I was a film critic at a, at an ABC station. I mean, we're, the world is much more important than a movie review. But then it came down to the point where, what are you going to do the first thing you do out of the box? And when they finally said, let's 
do something. And I said, I like to do a piece called Movies That Make Me Feel Good When I Feel So Bad. And the first movie that I watched was a, a DVD of Oklahoma. Aww. Because there's a guy on a horse, Gordon McRae, and he's singing, there's a bright golden haze on the meadow and there's no planes flying in the sky. And it was just beautiful. The sky was clean and beautiful and nobody's crashing and nobody's shooting a cop. And it just, it, it meant a, a lot to me. So yeah. I think what you do is you go to the movies that are comforting. Like, like if you're a kid, yeah. you watch Finding Dory over and over and over because it's comforting because you're five or six. And we as adults or do the same thing. <laughs> we resort back to our childhood. We find what's comforting. And yes, I think movies are comforting. Well, and, and, and because you go and laugh at a movie, it doesn't mean that you don't, you, you don't respect and, and remember. No what's happened no it's just at some point you need to have a little bit of a break well i think you need a break and you need to kind of just get away for a little bit sometimes just from the pain Escape. you know sometimes the it's almost a biblical concept but the light makes you understand the dark even more once you kind of understand comedy sometimes the darkness of life has a little bit more resonance and vice versa you know darkness makes you understand the light just a little bit more well and the beauty of and and not to the beauty of all of that is that pretty much every movie theater you go to now, you can also have a glass of wine with your movie. <laughs> I don't know if I should have said that after a biblical reference. But <laughs> no, but that is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. Most of them do serve a glass of you wine. You know, go have a good glass and a good laugh and, and, and celebrate life yeah, a little it's bit. it's good to be. A, I think wine's a good part of the healing process, too. Hey, that's it for Wine and Film, A Perfect Parent. Uh, two films coming up that I'm anxious to see. One we just mentioned it's a new uh, Jason Bourne film with Matt Damon. And also coming up down the road, Denzel Washington's going to star in a remake of a classic Western. It's The Magnificent Seven. I can't wait. Awesome. If you'd like some more information on any of the films or wines we talked about today, please check out our blog, The Perfect Pairing blog on our Cogill Consulting website. Be sure to follow Gary on Twitter at Gary Cogill and me on Instagram and Twitter at Dallas Uncorked. And we hope you join us next time. With that, I'm Gary Cogill, and as usual, I'm looking for the next great film. And I'm Haley Hamilton Cogill, always in search of a great glass of wine. Please join us next time on A Perfect Pairing.